Well, I'm Jared, and I'm really delighted that you're here today, and it's been, uh, it's been great worshiping with you. As Brad said, uh, we're really glad you, you made it in from your car, to however you got here. There's really no good way to get into the building today, and you persevered. So, you know, if you were into that, you could congratulate yourself. I made it this morning. Awesome. So thank you. Hey, uh, we have a real treat for you today. Many of you know uh, Joe Whitworth, uh, Ann's brother, my brother-in-law, uh, because uh, Joe and Lena uh, come about once a year, and uh, we're so delighted. Uh, some of you may not have had the opportunity of meeting Joe yet, and uh, I just want to tell you today that um, I'm generally really, really glad when Joe comes, but I would never schedule this again in the future when the Oregon Ducks play the Washington State Cougars. <laughs> Joe's going to be talking about finding God in suffering today, and I need this message. But I'm not sure that I need it from somebody who's gloating about the Cougs win. And by the way, you Cougar fans today, just a shout out to you. Just go ahead and enjoy it. Just. (laughs) Joe, we celebrate with you. We really, we really, we really do celebrate with you. Yeah. I met Joe when I was in the eighth grade. Anne invited me to come to her big brother's high school graduation. Joe. Graduating was the senior that they chose to give the graduate speech, and I still remember that message. Uh, Joe became for me the big brother that uh, I lost as a kid growing up when my big brother died when I was five, and I had no idea how God would, uh, would uh, fill a spot in my life. So, Joe, you not only are much older than I am, but you truly, <laughs> truly are my big brother. Joe and Lena have uh, been serving a church in Spokane, Washington, Life Center, for almost 40 years. And during that time, it's not only grown to a church of several thousand, but over the years also has uh, given birth to daughter churches throughout the Spokane uh, County area, as well as other places in the country and international now as well. I think that there's uh, probably few people in my life, and maybe for you as well, that you uh, would take seriously what Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote to some of his followers when he said, follow me as I follow Christ. It's quite a remarkable thing over uh, this point in my lifetime to be able to say there's a handful of people in my life that have followed Jesus in a way that I would say with confidence, if I don't know what to do, I could follow them and I would likely end up closer to Jesus. Joe, you are one of those people in my life. So it really is a pleasure today as your friend, as your brother, and as someone who continues to learn and grow from you to invite you to come. Would you welcome Joe Whitworth? Thank you, Jared. Oh, that was awful nice of you, Jared. You're a good loser. That's, you know. <laughs> Jared's actually doing pretty well. Anne's still a little bitter, if you want to pray for her. I mean, yeah, yeah. But credit where credit's due, right? Third string quarterback, true freshman. Yeah. If your regular quarterback had been playing, we would have beat you anyway. But. Hey, you should all know, just so, just so you know, I am a U of O alum, all right? So I know you're thinking, what is wrong with you? Yeah. Well, when you live 40 years in cougar country, you got to root for the cougs. Sorry. Uh, but so I root for the ducks every other weekend of the year except this one weekend. 
It's the only weekend I don't root for them. So that's why Jared is never going to have me back again on this weekend. Always an honor to speak to you. And Jared said some really nice things. But I want you to know that, um, of course, you already know that you have terrific pastors. And uh, Jared and Ann uh, have been a huge influence in my life. You mentioned the church planting. And really, I'm a church planter because of them and their influence. In fact, um, this last week, I was down in Los Angeles at a big church planting conference. And, you know, ultimately, I'm there because of their influence. But the funny part was, I mean, at this conference... A few people recognized me, but they don't recognize me as Pastor Joe from Spokane. They recognize me as Ann Roth's brother. (laughs) Truly, I had a, I shook a guy's hand. He says, I know you. You're Ann Roth's brother. (laughs) True story. So thank you, Jared and Ann. All right, well, we're going to talk about about finding God in suffering. And I want to just start with a question that I think all of us can relate to. Have you ever felt like you were in the dark? You ever felt like uh, stuff is going on in your life and you're going, what is happening? Where is God? Why is he letting this happen to me? We spend a good deal of our time in the dark. And the Bible actually, there's a verse in the Bible that actually speaks to this. Uh, Well, there's a bunch of them, but I'm going to just read one. 1 Corinthians 13 from the love chapter. Paul says, Verse 12, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. Now we see but a poor reflection in a mirror. The King James says now we see in a glass darkly. I think the New American Standard says we see in a mirror dimly. And uh, this idea of of a poor reflection, the dim or the dark uh, vision in the mirror... Uh, translates a Greek word, uh, uh, enigmati. I think we're going to put it up on the screen. There it is. Enigmati. Does that sound like an English word to you? Enigmatic or enigma? What's an enigma? An enigma is a mystery. An enigma is a puzzle, a riddle. An enigma is something that we just can't quite figure out. It's just beyond us. That's the Greek word here. Isn't that interesting? Now we see in a mirror darkly. Life is an enigma. We're in the dark trying to figure this out. By the way, uh, this illustration of a mirror that Paul uses is interesting because he writes to Corinth, and the Corinthians were famous for their mirrors. And when you picture a mirror, of course, you picture what we have today, right, which is a beautiful, perfect, clear reflection. Mirrors as we know them today uh, didn't come about until the 13th century. Prior to that, back in Paul's day, a mirror was just a piece of polished metal. Even the best ones, and Corinth had some of the best ones, even the best ones gave a poor reflection. It was very, very different than seeing someone face to face. Now, the good news is, Paul says, right now, we're in the dark. We're seeing this poor reflection. But one day, he says, we'll see face to face. Right now, we know in part. But the day's coming when we'll see Jesus, and then we'll know fully, even as we've been fully known. But in the meanwhile, we're living in what I call the mirror days, right? These are the mirror days, the days where life is still an enigma a lot of the time, a puzzle. The face-to-face days are yet to come. And we live in a broken world, don't we? Uh, this past week was more evidence of that, the, the horror in Las Vegas. Uh, but apart from those kind of larger things that are out there, all of us have stuff in our life where we're experiencing the brokenness of the world, where there's pain, there's suffering, there's questions. Where it's hard. It's just hard. And how are we to understand that? How are we to uh, make sense of our suffering? Well, I want to suggest 
that uh, the Bible presents a very, very robust theology of suffering. And we, most of us who are American Christians, have what I think is a fairly thin theology of suffering. In fact, for most of us, suffering is something to be avoided, if at all possible. We fear and avoid suffering, while the Christians of the New Testament often embraced it. We want to believe that comfort, convenience, and happiness are our birthright from God and guaranteed by our Constitution, right? We want a gospel that promises us success and happiness, not one that invites us to pick up a cross. We want a Savior who will rescue us from every unpleasantness, not one who invites us to join him in suffering. Our prayer often is, God, make me happy. And God's answer often is, I'd rather make you holy. So I want to invite you to look into the mirror with me. We're going to look at this enigma of suffering and see if we can make some sense of it. Understand how God uses suffering to achieve some of his grand purposes in our lives. And so uh, if you've got an outline there, you'll see I'm going to talk about two things. I'm going to spend almost all of my time on number one. You'll see three sub points there. So we're going to spend almost all the time on number one. When we get to number two, the landing gear will come out. I'll be coming in for a landing. It'll be very short, but very important. All right, so here we go. Number one. Number one on your outline. God is at work in the dark. I said we're living in the dark, right? We're living in this time of the mirror days, the enigma. And God is at work in the dark. In those moments when he feels farthest away, God may be closest. When you think he's forgotten you, he actually may be doing some of his best work. And of course... The classic example of this in the Bible is what? Okay, you're in church. What's the right answer in church? Jesus. Thank you. Yes, yeah, yeah. Just, you might want to just kind of, uh, did you get that one right? Huh? See, good. So you might want to just tuck that away. And anytime I ask a question, if you don't know the answer, just shout Jesus. Chances are you're going to get it right. So the best example of God working in the dark is, of course, Jesus. That when Jesus was dying on the cross, it looked from the outside like evil had triumphed, didn't it? It looked like the darkness had won. But God was at work in the dark, accomplishing his purposes and redeeming the whole world. Think of it. The worst thing that we as human beings could do, to nail our God to a cross. And in the midst of that, God was actually at work redeeming the world. It became the best thing God ever did. Our darkest hour turned into our brightest because God used it for our redemption. If God can do that with the worst that we can do, imagine what he can do with what you're going through right now. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that in, in what? In all things, in all things, in the good things and the bad things, uh, in the blue hair, <laughs> in the cougars beating the ducks, yeah. In all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. You know, I know that this verse has been used insensitively sometimes. Sometimes when we're in the midst of suffering and someone comes up and says, well, just praise the Lord because God's at work in all things, it can feel a little bit like a tired cliche, can't it? But here's the thing. It's still true. It's still true that God is at work in all things for our good. He's at work in the dark. During the Blitz of London, um, the bombing of London in World War II, uh, one night there was a father and his son who happened to be out when the German planes came over and dropped their bombs. And they quickly went to find shelter. And uh, the place that they could 
jump into was actually a crater from a previous bombing. And so this father jumped down into this dark hole and then turned around and held his arms up to his son and said, jump. He could see his son silhouetted against the bright sky, but his son, looking down into that dark hole, couldn't see his father. And so he said, Father, I can't see you. And the father said, jump, because I can see you. And oftentimes when we're in the midst of our suffering, we feel like that boy, don't we? Standing on the edge of a dark hole, and our father's inviting us to jump. We can't see him, but the good news is he can see us. And if we believe that, we can jump and know that he'll catch us. Can you trust your father when you're in the dark? Do you believe that he's working for your good? So what are some of the things that God might be doing in our suffering? There are three of them on your outline, A, B, and C. We'll go through these three things that God does in our suffering. First of all, letter A, God uses suffering to accomplish his purposes. God uses suffering to accomplish his purposes. Now, please hear this. I'm not saying that God causes the suffering. All right, We live in a broken world. Suffering's caused for a whole lot of reasons. I, I did a talk once on this, and I listed six different reasons why we suffer. And God is rarely one of those. So God doesn't cause the suffering, but God works in the dark, in that enigma of our suffering, to accomplish his purposes. So here's a story in the Bible that uh, a lot of you know that, that illustrates it pretty well. It's the story of, of uh, Joseph and his father Jacob. And in, in Genesis 42, verse 36, Jacob complains, and I, I love this little saying, Jacob says, everything is against me. Have you ever felt that way? Everything is against me. Everything is going wrong. What is going on here? And what had happened is that uh, uh, Jacob had just heard from his sons that the ruler of Egypt would not give his family any more grain unless his sons brought their brother Benjamin down to Egypt. Now, if you know the story, you know that Jacob has already lost one son. What was his name? Joseph, right? He's already lost Joseph. He doesn't want to lose another son, and that's what's at risk here. He's afraid if he sends Benjamin down. Benjamin is Joseph's only surviving full-blood brother. He's already lost Joseph. He doesn't want to lose Benjamin. And so he says, no, he's not going to do it. Well, finally, they run out of food. And the situation's different. They're going to starve to death. And the brothers uh, beg their father. He finally gives in, and he sends Benjamin. But he's between this rock and a hard place. On the one hand, he feels like, if I send Benjamin, I may lose my son. On the other hand, if I don't send Benjamin, I may lose my whole family to starvation. Everything's against me. That's what he said. Everything's against me. Well, of course, Jacob had no idea at that moment that God was actually at work in the dark. He had no idea that he was not going to lose another son, but find the one he had lost. He had no idea that everything was not about to be against him. Everything was about to be restored and healed. He was in the dark, and from his perspective at that moment, from his very limited perspective, it looked to him like everything was against him, but in fact, God was at work accomplishing his purposes. Well, the family runs out of food and facing starvation. The brothers prevail upon Jacob. They take Benjamin. They go down to Egypt. Of course, they meet the prime minister of Egypt, who is who? It's Joseph, right? <laughs> Can you imagine? The brothers are standing before one of the most powerful men on the face of the planet, the prime minister of Egypt. And they realize this prime minister, who has all the power and authority, happens to be the brother that they threw into a pit to kill and then sold as a slave to Egypt. He suffered for 13 years because of them. And now he's got all the power. And what do they assume? He's, yeah, he's going to take his revenge now. And so it says they were terrified. But instead of taking revenge, here's what Joseph did. 
Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph said, don't be afraid. You intended to harm me. Notice that? What was the brother's intention? To harm Joseph. Joseph, this is no Pollyanna, right? Joseph knew what they were trying to do. You, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many different lives. Here are two very different purposes, right? God's purpose and the brother's purpose. The brother's purpose, you meant it for evil. You meant to harm me. God's purpose, God was accomplishing his purpose of saving many lives. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Maybe you feel like Jacob. Have you felt that way? Everything's against me. You're living in the dark, in the mirror days, where you can't see what God's up to. Everything's against me. But be assured that God's at work in the, in the dark. God is working in all things for the good of those who love him. Letter B. First, God uses suffering to accomplish his purpose. Second, letter B. God uses suffering to make us like Christ. He uses suffering to build our character. One of God's most clearly stated purposes is to make us more like Jesus. And we'll go back to that passage in Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Pause. What's his purpose? What's his purpose? Well, he tells us the next verse, verse 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom God foreknew. That just means that God knew ahead of time who would believe. doesn't mean that he forced you to, that he made you. That It just means that God knew. He knew what you would choose. And those whom he foreknew would believe, he predestined them. He picked out a destiny ahead of time for them. That's all it means. To predestine means you pick out a destination ahead of time. You all did it this morning, right? That's how you got here. I'm assuming that you got into your cars with a destination in mind. What was your destination? Church, best church ever, Evergreen Christian Center, right here. Here you are. huh? So you had a destination in mind. Is there anybody in the room that got in your car, just started driving willy-nilly, and you ended up here? Well, look where I am. Huh? Yeah, right, right over here. Okay, good. We know that God really wants you here, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that's, we do this all the time. Every time you get in your car, or most times anyway, you get in your car with a predestination in mind. And God has a destination in mind for you. What is it? He wants to conform you to the likeness of his son. He wants to make you more like Jesus. Have you ever met someone from a family you know, and as soon as you meet them, you can tell what family they're from? It's like, oh my word, you look like your mom, you look like your dad or your brother or sister. That's what God wants for you. God wants for people to look at you and say, you know what? You remind me of your father. You remind me of your big brother. He's conforming us to the likeness of Jesus. And God uses everything to do that, including our suffering. Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. Not only so, Paul writes, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Just pause there for a minute. That's hard, isn't it? We rejoice. How can you rejoice in your suffering? Well, he says, because... We can rejoice because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. Remember I said that the New Testament has a very robust theology of suffering? Here's one example. 
We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know something. We know that God's at work. And we know that he's at work to make us more like Christ, to produce character in us. Suffering produces character. Suffering can make you better instead of bitter if you know that God's at work in the midst of it. So one example here real quick. Um, uh, my son, Jeff. I've got a picture of, of uh, Jeff and his older brother, Andy, here. These are my two oldest boys. Uh, Andy's on the left, big smile, Jeff. So Jeff, uh, Jeff had Asperger's syndrome. Uh, which is a form of high-functioning high autism. Some of you might be familiar with that. And uh, kids with Asperger's typically uh, have some, uh, some social deficits. Uh, it was really hard for Jeff to read your facial expression or your tone of voice. And so you know, small talk, social interaction was like a foreign language to him. It was really tough. But another thing that, uh, another part of Jeff's deal was that he was hypersensitive to touch. He did not like to be hugged. And this is common with many Asperger's kids. And so here's his big brother giving him a hug, and there's Jeff's reaction right there. It's like, you know. So uh, this is Jeff. Well, Jeff, Jeff was a handful. In fact, Lane and I have often said that raising Jeff took more energy, more time, more attention, more effort than the other four kids combined. Raising Jeff was hard. It was just hard. And on top of that, by the time he got to be a teenager, Jeff knew how to push my buttons. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And um, I can't tell you how many times I prayed the take it away prayer. Now, don't misunderstand me. I wasn't asking God to take Jeff away. I was asking God to take away the Asperger's, to heal him, to make him, I love this word, normal. By the way, what's normal? Yeah. <laughs> there is no such thing, right? Yeah. Although in all of our minds, what's normal? Isn't that true? I am normal. You are all weird. That's how, yeah, that's kind of how we think. But, uh, yeah, but I prayed, I prayed so many times, Lord, this is so hard. This is so much work raising this kid. This is so difficult. Would you please heal him? Please make it, you know, make it easier for me. Well, I finally realized, I don't know where, but somewhere along the line I realized that, you know, I'd given God lots of chances to do that. That wasn't happening. wasn't going to happen. And so I started to pray a different prayer. My prayer was, Okay, Lord, what are you up to? Right? You gave me this kid. <laughs> Sorry. Don't you wonder what just went through my mind? Yeah. I'm not going to tell you. But anyway, we, uh, Lord, you gave me this kid. What are you trying to do? So one day I'm talking with my friend Rick. Pastor Rick is, he's my associate pastor, has been with me for 35 years. And I was just telling Rick a Jeff story. Jeff, had gone rock climbing with a couple buddies, and the leader was a, a guy named Stan Busby. Stan is just a, an incredible chiseled stud muffin, very similar to Jared. And um, <laughs> yeah. But a terrific outdoorsman, rock climber, all this stuff. So, so he's got the boys out rock climbing, and, and Stan is up at the top. He's doing top roping, right? And, and Jeff is climbing up this sheer rock face, and he gets halfway up, and he freezes. And he looks up at Stan up above him, you know, 15, 20 feet up, and he says, I can't do it. And Stan just looks at him and doesn't say a thing. Not a word. And Jeff hangs there for a minute, just suspended on the face of this rock, gripping the rock. I can't do it. Stan doesn't say anything. After a minute, Jeff clambers on up and reaches the top. So I told Rick that story, 
And Rick, my friend, says, Joe, you could learn something from that. <laughs> we all need friends who will say that to us, don't we? Yeah. And he's a good friend. And I said, what's that? And he said, underreact. Underreact. He says, did you notice that Stan just didn't react at all? He just left Jeff hanging there, and Jeff figured it out, and up he went. And he said, you, Joe, have a tendency to overreact. This, by the way, is a major understatement. <laughs> Could any of you imagine me overreacting? <laughs> I tend to wear my emotions on my sleeve. And as I said, Jeff knew how to push my buttons. Well, this became my little mantra with Jeff. I said it to myself all the time. Underreact, underreact, underreact. And it changed my relationship with him. I'll just give you one real quick little example. So one time, uh, one time Jeff was yelling at Lane and he said something really unkind. And normally, you know, I just come right out of my chair and get after him. And, and when I would do that, when I would overreact, it was like pouring gas on a fire. Just made it worse. And so I'm learning. To, so I hear him doing this. I just underreact. So very calmly I said, Jeff, please don't talk to your mom that way. He turned around, stomped off down the stairs, muttering and swearing and. <laughs> Ten minutes later, back up he comes. Mom, I'm sorry. And apologized. That was a much better outcome than if I had overreacted, poured gas on the fire, and turned the thing into a major eruption. Does that make sense? Underreact. Here's the cool thing. This is really, really cool. So I kept practicing this with Jeff. Underreact, underreact, underreact. The cool thing was. But I got so good at it that it started bleeding over into all my other relationships. <laughs> I became a much nicer person. God used something that was very difficult in my life, that relationship with my son. God used that to make me a better person. And God wants to do that with those hardships and difficulties and sufferings in our lives. James 1, verses 2 to 4. Here it comes again. James is going to attack the same idea. Consider it pure, what? Consider it pure misery, my brothers. That's how we want to read it, right? Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Why can we rejoice? Here it comes again. Because you know. There's that same phrase. Because you know something. What do you know? You know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You can rejoice because you know. You know that this testing right now, this thing you're going through, is testing your faith, and it's going to produce perseverance, which produces character. Same thing that Paul says in Romans. But I love the phrase that he uses here. He says, then, he says, then you'll be complete and mature. And these are interesting words because the word complete means that all the pieces are there. So imagine a puzzle. You ever put together a jigsaw puzzle? You get to the very end, there's three pieces missing. Ah! Right? Well, complete means, hey, they're all there. All the pieces are there. Then mature means everything's fully developed as it should be. So think of the fruit of the Spirit, which is a description of the character of Jesus, right? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Nine things. To be complete means all nine are there. You've got all nine of those. To be mature means that you love like Jesus. You're joyful like Jesus. You're patient like Jesus. You're peaceful like Jesus, right? That you've become fully developed like Christ is. So that's a beautiful picture, right? Complete and mature. And that happens how? Well, it happens through our suffering, through our hardship, through our trials and trouble. That's what God uses 
to develop our character and make us the people he wants us to be. A man found the cocoon of an emperor moth. You've all seen emperor moths. They're beautiful. He took this cocoon home because he wanted to watch the moth emerge. Well, one day, a small opening uh, appeared in the cocoon, and this man watched for several hours as the moth struggled but couldn't quite seem to force its body past a certain point. The man finally decided that something was wrong, and he took a pair of scissors, and he very carefully snipped the remaining bit of cocoon. Well, the moth at this point emerged easily, but its body was large and swollen, and its wings small and shriveled. The man expected that in a few hours, the wings would spread out in their full natural beauty, and the moth would fly, but it never happened. Instead of developing into a creature free to fly, that moth spent its short, doomed life with a swollen body and shriveled wings. And what the man discovered was that the constricting cocoon, this small hole, was God's way of forcing the fluid from that swollen body out into the wings. This man's apparent act of mercy was actually the moth's death sentence. Sometimes, you see, the struggle is exactly what we need to become the people God wants us to be. We were destined to fly, but we don't get there without going through that constricted space. God uses suffering to make us more like Christ. Let her see. Let her see. God uses suffering to draw us to himself. God uses suffering to draw us to himself. So, for most people, what motivates us to change? Pain, exactly. It's pain. Isn't it true? It's, well, you know, we say, I just can't stand it anymore, right? Uh, something's got to change. Have you ever said that? Something's got to change. We get to that spot where we experience enough pain, finally we say, okay, uncle, I'm going to change this. So uh, just uh, a week ago, just, just last Sunday, uh, Lane and I uh, heard uh, the stories of a couple, a married couple, in our church, we just heard them tell their stories, and it was very, very inspiring. But oh my, it also would just curl your hair, right? I mean, this their story had everything in it. There was addiction, there was drug abuse, there was divorce and remarriage, financial disaster, immorality, arrest, and jail time. I mean, it went on just like you're going, oh my word. But when they were done telling the story, here's what happened. All of that brought them down, 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 until they hit what? They hit bottom. And when they hit bottom, they cried out to God. And God redeemed them. I mean, and when I say God redeemed them, I mean, it is awesome to see. These people can't tell that story without tears of gratitude flowing down their cheeks. They can hardly get it out. They're so grateful to God for what he's done. But they didn't change until the pain got bad, until they hit the bottom. Then they turned. Now, again, I wish that wasn't so, but that is true for many people, that pain is a great attention getter. C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, and he shouts to us in our pain. God uses pain to get our attention. Again, I'm not saying God causes the pain, but somehow God uses that pain to get our attention and to draw us to himself. The Apostle Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. He says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. Here comes that prayer. To what? Take it away. Take it away. Take it away. Doesn't this make you feel better? It should. The great apostle Paul, right? One of the greatest church planters, pastors, Christian leaders of all time. 
prays the same prayer that you and I pray. Take it away, God. Take it away. And the Lord answered, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight, I rejoice in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Here's Paul in torment, in pain, suffering, and he prays three times, take it away, take it away, take it away. And each time God's answer is, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul, I'm enough. I'm all you need. Lean into me, depend upon me, trust me. I'm here for you. Paul, you're standing on the edge of the crater looking into the darkness. You can't see me, but I can see you. Jump. I've got you. I believe that God used Paul's suffering to draw him closer, to teach him trust and dependence, and that God wanted to give Paul his divine strength, and so he used Paul's weakness and pain to get his attention. I have a friend who, um, he's a really good buddy of mine. We ride motorcycles together, um, and... and, um, that's just awesome. Anyway, is there a guy in the room that needs a motorcycle? Huh? Because I'm just saying, you know, wives, it's better to be on your motorcycle thinking about God than to be in church thinking about your motorcycle. Am I right, Jared? Absolutely. And wives, I know you're holding back. My wife held back for years, but now she says, go ride, come back with bugs in your teeth, come back happy. Hallelujah. Anyway, okay, so, sorry, sorry. I'm, I have spiritual ADD, can you tell? I'm all over the map. So I'm telling you a story about my friend. He and I ride motorcycles together. He's also a neighbor. He's a wonderful guy. But 20 years ago, when he was in his early 30s, like 32, 33 years old, he was diagnosed with cancer. And I'm happy to tell you that the treatment worked. He's been cancer-free since then. Um, but we were talking about that whole experience. This is a couple years after it happened. We were talking about it, and he said something that just shocked me when he said Here's what he said, and I'm quoting him. He says, I thank God that I got cancer. I said, what? He says, I thank God that I got cancer. It was the best thing that ever happened to me because God used it to bring me into a new relationship with himself. And if you talk to this guy, he would tell you that he was kind of coasting along. He was a Christian, but he was kind of coasting along, not a full-on, fully devoted follower of Jesus. Christian, yeah, but just more of a churchgoer than really all in. And God used that experience to get his attention and draw him to himself in a big way. Sometimes the worst thing in our life can be the best thing because God uses it to change us, to draw us to himself. God works in the darkness of our suffering. And if you find yourself right now standing on the edge of that crater, looking into the dark, wondering what is going on, please know that your father is waiting to catch you. Jump, he says. You can't see me, but I can see you, and I've got you. Here's the last thing. Number two, coming in for a landing. Everyone okay? Landing gear's out. We're coming in. Number two, the last thing, and this is real important. It'll be short, but very important. God suffered. He suffers with us. Ultimately, the answer to the problem of suffering is not philosophical. It's not an abstract idea because this is not an abstract problem. It's very personal. And so the answer to suffering is personal as well. In fact, the answer is a person. The answer is Jesus. 
And when someone asks, where's God in the midst of my suffering? The answer is he's right here and always has been because he's suffered too. Isaiah 53.3 predicts this about Jesus. It says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Jesus was despised and rejected. Jesus knows all about sorrow. He suffered for us. Where's God when we suffer? The answer is he's right there, suffering with us. Are we broken? He was broken for us. Are we despised? He was despised and rejected for us. Do we cry out that we can't take it anymore? He was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Where is God? We ask. And God gives us an answer that's not just a philosophical explanation. He gives us an answer that's a person. Jesus is the answer. Peter Kreeft, who's a wonderful Catholic theologian, said, Jesus is what we really need. Jesus is what we really need. If your friend is sick and dying, the most important thing he wants is not an explanation. He wants for you to sit with him. And this, he says, Peter Kreeft says, this is what God has done for us. God has not left us alone, and for that, I love him. So back to where we started. We're looking in that mirror dimly, right? The enigma, the mystery. And I want to tell you, friends, that I certainly don't have all the answers for suffering. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in my life and in your lives that I can't explain. I showed you that picture of my son, Jeff. I don't know if you noticed that I talked about him in the past tense. He died in 2006, just before his 23rd birthday. And his death was one of the hardest things that Lane and I have ever experienced. Six months later, I was diagnosed with cancer. I was so glad when 2007 came. Just happy to turn the page on that particular year because it was a year of intense suffering for us. But you know what I discovered? In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the enigma, when I was scratching my head and I couldn't figure it out, when I'm standing on the edge of that dark hole looking in, the one thing I knew was that my father was there. And even though I couldn't see him, he could see me. And he said, jump. I've got you. Let's pray. Lord, help us to trust you when we can't figure things out. Help us in the midst of our suffering and pain to know that you're at work, you're powerfully at work in the dark, bringing about your purposes for us. Lord, when we can't see, and that happens so often to us, when we're looking in that mirror darkly and we just can't see, would you speak to our hearts and remind us that even though we can't see you, you can see us and you've got us. Help us to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.